This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 254. And the quote of the day is from George Matthew Allen, who said, People with many interests live not only the longest, but the happiest. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond and beyond and beyond. Hey, what's up, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And listen, if you are tired of getting passed over for the gigs that you deserve and you want higher paying, better gigs, then do yourself a favor. Go to drummersresource.com forward slash gigs, G-I-G-S, and I'll send you a five-part email series about how you can get bigger and better gigs. It's 100% free. Just go to drummersresource.com forward slash gigs. That's G-I-G-S and you will be signed up for the list and you'll get five emails, one a day for five days that you can check out and dive into and hopefully that'll get you some bigger and better gigs. Now let's get into the conversation I have for today. So this is John Ramsey. John is the chair of the percussion department at Berkeley, but he's also played with Art Blakey. He was Art Blakey's tour manager and studied with the legendary Alan Dawson. And John is a very well-accomplished drummer in his own right. And this conversation is great to me for numerous reasons. One, we talk about the genius of Alan Dawson. And then we also talk about all the cool stories with Art Blakey and also John's approach to life, to playing and to preparing yourself for the real world of the music business and, and the changing landscape of the music business now versus, you know, years ago when Art Blakey was playing or or even when John was coming up. So some really, really solid information, some cool stories and just some golden nuggets for you to take away. So without further ado, let's get into it with John Ramsey. John, how are you? Thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Hi, Nick. It's nice to be here in Hoboken with you. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess you guys got got a ton of snow up there, too. We got our share, yeah. Yeah. And then it all froze. It it rained at the end of the snowstorm, and so I was out there with a snowblower, and and it turned to rain, and then everything froze overnight, and it's just a mess. But, you know, that's what they say. You've probably heard it before. Uh, If you don't like the weather in New England, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah, you haven't heard that one? No, I never heard that. Oh yeah, that's an oldie. <laughs> well, if you, I know that uh, for for where I live, I always say that it's the same weather forecast for every snowstorm. It goes in three phases. It's the storm of the century, downgraded, yeah. rain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's it's been how that it, way. Yeah, yeah that's that how way. it always ends up. Yeah. So uh, this is not the weather podcast. This is the drumming podcast. Oh, so that's right. <laughs> I want to I want to get into a, a bit of your backstory just to build a little bit of context. We don't have to go through your your entire life story, but just a little bit of sort of how you got started, how you got the bug to play, right. uh, and then I want to talk about your career, Alan Dawson, all sorts of of great stuff to talk about. So uh, yeah, right. if you could just fill the listeners in a little bit, and also you know what you do now. Okay, I'll see if I can keep that under. 60 minutes or something. I mean, 60 seconds. Um, well, I'm from Western Massachusetts, and I'm a child of the 60s. <laughs> I was born in 1950, so now everybody will get how old I am. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, my sort of coming of age happened around the time of, you know, Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and all of that stuff, and Janis Joplin and John Mayall and the Blues Breakers and Cream and, 
you know, that was, you know, my, my formative years in music. And um, just try to tell you this as quickly as I can. I had some friends, a couple of friends who owned drum sets, mm-hmm. except they were kind of over them at that point. One of them was, you know, played in a high school band. And uh, I actually got in there. I couldn't even read music. And I, I played the bass drum. And this, this friend of mine would actually kind of tell me when to hit the thing because it was that, you know, I was that... <laughs> that uh untrained but but anyways a couple of these guys had drum sets but they they kind of were done with them but i would go to their house and i'd want to play their drum set and they'd want to go out and play you know war or something but so anyways i just kind of naturally gravitated towards the drum set and um plus my mom worked in a nightclub i would she would let me in there on uh friday night to hear the band for the first set or something and so i just sort of a natural natural attraction to me but um, there were some older friends who had a band and they had a drummer, but I went to their, uh, I would go to their rehearsal and kind of, you know, they would rehearse and then they'd take a break and I'd jump up on the drums just any chance I could to, to beat on the drums. And, but long story short, they were, um, they played in the battle of the bands, which was a big thing back in the sixties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was probably about 12 or 13 at this time. And, um, so they played in the, Oh, here's actually what happened was, uh, their drummer wanted to sing a song. It was actually by the Kinks. It was called The Well-Respected Man. So I know your listeners probably don't remember that. But but at any rate, he couldn't sing and play at the same time. <laughs> so you're like, I'll step in. So they were like, well, okay, you go to the microphone and we'll let Ramsey play the drums. So there I was, the battle of the bands. I'm waiting in the wings. They're playing their songs. Then the guy comes to his song where he sings. He goes to the mic. I come out. I play the one, the one song. And then I go back backstage and... Anyways, uh, these guys, you know, it was kind of a local thing in, in Greenfield, Massachusetts. And um, these guys came in second to the lo- – we were from a small town outside of that uh, town. And, and, you know, the local guys won the Battle of the Bands. The drummer was so upset that uh, to this day, I remember, I can see him doing this. He took his drumsticks, he threw them in the tray of the trap case, and he said, I quit. <laughs> and i was i was like oh cool all right and i didn't even own a drum set but the next day you know i was um, begging my father to buy me a drum set if i if he could buy me a drum set i could be in a band so there i was i was like instantly employed and these guys worked i mean for you know for teenagers then we played at uh you know high school dances the moose club the you know the um, the American Legion, the Saint Casimir Hall. So I was instantly uh, a working musician. It's amazing. And like I said, I was about thirteen, fourteen at the time, and so uh, that's kind of how I got started. Mm-hmm. And I, I went along like that for a good ten years, really being a self-taught drummer. I think I took one lesson from the guy that played in the bar where my mom. My mom worked, and, you know, he wasn't a teacher, but I don't even remember what he showed me. But, I mean, I played as a self-taught drummer, making uh, somewhat of a livelihood (laughs) for 10 years. Um, And, you know, like I said, I I really, I was primarily a rock drummer. We played all the, you know, the rock music of the day, and, uh, you know, it was the 60s. And it wasn't until... I was probably in my early 20s, I want to say 22, 23 or something like that, which if I had started when I was 13, that would have been 10 years, uh, that I, I sought out Alan Dawson. And uh, <laughs> I, I actually, it's a funny story because I, 
I came at that time, Alan was still teaching at Berkeley. So I drove to Boston. We, I lived about 90 miles away and I went to the second floor of the 1140 Boylston street, uh, at Berkeley, which is where I have an office now. And, uh, I found Alan Dawson on the second floor and this guy answered the door, very dignified, dapper gentleman. Uh, and I'm like, hi, uh, you Mr. Dawson. He was like, yes. I'm like, Oh, uh, do you teach outside of Berkeley? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, as a matter of fact, you've come at a good time because uh, I'm actually leaving Berkeley, I don't know, six months or, you know, right. a few months down the road. And he said, I'll, and I'll have a private practice in my, my house at my house in Lexington. And so um, I started to commute from Western Mass every other week. 180 miles round trip to take lessons with Alan Dawson. And Jeez. actually, it, I, those lessons happened in the basement of the house that I live in now. I was going to say, I heard that you you, yeah. ha you bought his house, right? Yeah, it was, you know, many years later. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I think I have a piece of Alan Dawson stationery. Oh, yeah, with a little snare, Ludwig snare drum logo? Yes, that you gave to Don Lombardi, who Don Lombardi oh. gave to me as a gift. Yeah, wow, that's nice. That's so nice. thank you. I have one of them. <laughs> yeah, there was a file cabinet down in the basement. The way that happened was that, you know, because of the, the book that I, you know, when I wrote Alan's book, it was really that I'd been already teaching at Berkeley, I think, for about 10 years or, or more maybe at that point. And, and I would always write out, you know, students' lessons the way he wrote them out for me by mm -hmm. hand. And, you know, guys would always say, man, is this, is this stuff in a book anywhere? How can I get the rest of this, you know? And is it written down? And I said, no, but I had already written the, the Art Blakey book. So I had a relationship with the, the guys from Drummer's Collective, Paul Siegel, Rob Wallace. So I published that Art Blakey uh, text. And so, you know, at some point I came to see Alan here and I said, listen, uh, why don't you, what do you think about doing a book of your teaching? <laughs> you know, and he had, he had talked about publishing before because he had written a book in the seventies on odd times mm -hmm. and it was published by a German, German publisher. I remember having a lesson with him and he was talking about that book and uh, I said, Oh, I didn't, <laughs> he, he said he was really sour on publishers and, and you know, books. Plus he had something uh, at Berkeley years ago too. But anyways, uh, I said, well, I didn't even know you had a book. And he said, yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> he said, nobody's ever seen it or heard of it because it was published by some, you know, German company, never got distributed. But anyways, uh, so I came to, to talk to him about publishing the book. And uh, he said, yeah, yeah, all right. Well, you know, you write it, you put it together and I'll proofread it or whatever. And he was open to the idea. I got his blessings or whatever. So I started to write it. And within like a couple of months, uh, I called him and I said, look, I have some more stuff I want to come out and have you look at and make sure it's right and, you know, make mm -hmm. sure it's good with you. And he said, well, everything is on hold right now because uh, I have a medical issue. And uh, he said, I was supposed to go to Japan. I had to cancel that. It was a lot of money, but something's going on. I'm really, you know, I got to, everything's on hold. Lo and behold, we found out, I don't know, within a month that he had leukemia. Oh. And he actually passed away, you know, before I really had much of the book book put together. But because I, you know, I'd known the family for so long, uh, you know, a while after he passed, I came to his wife, whose name was Flo. Her name is Florence. We called her Flo. 
And I said, you know, Alan and I were working on this book, and I just want to know if I, I would have your blessing to, to complete the book. So he never actually got to saw it, but she, of course, gave me, you know, her blessings to, to write the book. And, of course, a, a portion of the, the royalties go to the, the family. But uh, so, yeah, I got from all the way from where I started, right, to <laughs> where I ended up. Uh, so, so I want to I want to rewind a little bit uh, about sort of the catalyst of why you decided to one seek out instruction and two seek out Alan Dawson specifically because I know for me when I was younger I was sort of in this stupid headspace of saying well I don't need a teacher I'm I'm the man and I can play everything and then sort of got my ass handed to me one day and then realized oh there's a lot that I don't know and then started going to you know going to get professional yeah. professional help as they say yeah that's a good question i'm glad you asked me it's a good i was actually thinking about this a little earlier about you know there's there's college music programs now and there's you know the, the you know the on the job training that's not as available as it used to be but what actually led me to alan was that after i i kind of you know outgrew the rock thing I fell in with some guys from Amherst, Massachusetts, and I don't know if you know, you're familiar with that, but it's a five-college area. There's the University of Mass there at Amherst. There's Amherst College. There's Smith College in Northampton. There's uh, uh, Hampshire College, and then there's Mount Holyoke College. So really a very thriving college community. But I ended up uh, playing with some guys who uh, were from Amherst, the Amherst area, and they were already miles ahead of me. They were into uh, – you know, like the early uh, Miles, Electric Miles Davis stuff, Bitches mm -hmm. Brew and that stuff. They they listened to the older Miles stuff. They were into Gil Scott Heron, Stevie Wonder. And anyways, I joined a band with these guys. It was really kind of like a, like a funk fusion band, but this is like, like 1970, oh, I don't know, I want to say 73 or 74 or something like that. But, I mean, right away that opened my, my mind up to, you know, stuff beyond uh, – you know, uh, cream or Jimi Hendrix and, mm -hmm. that I, I hadn't really grown up with because, uh, I, I lived in a pretty rural place, but these guys were, they were hip. They, they knew what was going on. I mean, we've really had a hip little band that actually did very well in, in the Amherst area. We actually branched out to playing in Boston and New York state. And, but at any rate, they were actually, a couple of them were students at, in the music department at UMass and Max Roach had just come there and was oh. teaching at U UMass and was actually living in Amherst because he was teaching full time. Later, he had kind of a, I don't know, falling out with the department or something. He became kind of like a, he did what they call context. But at this time, he was a full time teacher there. I was a local kid. I wasn't enrolled at the school, but <clears throat> the director of the jazz program there was a guy named um, Fred Tillis. And there was a drummer in the big band uh, named John Betch, who was a great jazz drummer who came there like a lot of guys at that time to to be around Max Roach. Mm -hmm. And so, I, again, I still couldn't really read music. You know, I was still kind of, a, you know, primarily more of an electric or a rock kind of drummer. I hadn't played a lot of jazz, but... But uh, I kind of became John Betch's understudy. And, and when he couldn't make the big band... I was always sitting behind him watching charts to kind of learn, you know, how to read. <laughs> it's a hard way to do it. Yeah, but it is. But at, at one point, and plus Max was, was very um, 
kind to me. He would let me sit in his classes. He would let me play in his ensemble. I wasn't even enrolled, but he kind of knew me as a local kid from the other guys that I played with. And he would, you know, I'd play in the, in the, the small ensemble he had. I would go to his, uh, his uh, percussion ensemble. And I just, you know, kind of, you know, hanging around the music department there. But one day I, I asked him, I said, Max, uh, do you give private lessons? <laughs> he said, no, I don't do that. <laughs> and uh, he said, but if you want to study, you should get your behind down to Boston and study with Alan Dawson. Wow. I was like, okay, well, who's Alan Dawson? You know, I hadn't really heard of him. Maybe I had, but, you know, then we kind of knew later that, you know, he was Tony Williams' teacher and Harvey Mason's teacher and uh, a whole bunch of guys. Yeah. Uh, so it was really Max Roach that – inspired me to, to seek out Alan and to study with Alan. So, so I always had, had kind of a theory about why Max didn't teach private lessons, kind of didn't want a bunch of Max Roach clones running around. Of course, there were anyways. But, sure. But it was Max. Yeah, Max uh, sent me to Alan. That's, I mean, just the fact that you can say Max Roach sent you to Alan Dawson is a pretty amazing statement. But uh, I want to, I just to finish your question, I want to fast forward too, because I started to study with Alan. I, 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 I still hung around at UMass, but was never officially a student. And, you know, of course, I studied reading with Alan, but it, it really, it, it was almost, you know, the reading wasn't chart interpretation per se. It was learning the basics of syncopation, and you know. Uh, but in the interim, at some point, I ended up taking a gig in Miami, Florida, uh, with a vocalist, we had a three-month gig at a place called The Forge down there on Miami Beach, and it was a, like a really posh restaurant, and you played from like uh, 9.30 till, till 4 in the morning, and you alternated sets with another band. But uh, one thing led to another. I, I, I was down there for a while. I ended up getting fired from that gig. Then I stayed in Miami and played with a guy named Mike Gillis and Mike Gerber. They were two of the great jazz players in the Miami area. Uh, they're, they're still around, but um, the, I came back to Massachusetts in between and ended up going back to Miami again a year later playing with, <laughs> playing with the Platters. Oh, Herb, nice. Herb Reed of the original Platters in his group. Herb was like the, the bass voice because, you know, the, the name Platters was owned by uh, Buck Ram, who was the manager. So there were like one night I was playing on Miami Beach and a friend of mine said, John Ramsey of the platters meet, uh, you know, Joe Smith of the platters. And then we were two different platters. One was playing at the Swinger Lounge, the other one was playing at another place. But anyways, so I go back down, I end up quitting the platters for a gig at the Fountain Blue, which was six nights a week, uh, playing in, you'll love this, playing in the Poodle Lounge, <laughs> in the Fountain Blue Hotel. On that my hotel is beautiful too. It is now. Then it wasn't, it, it's been, it's been redone. I mean, it was always a grand old fountain blue but it was more you know it looked more like the the the, the days of uh you know um who uh, <laughs> was the show they did there i can't even think of it but but at any rate so i'm playing in the poodle lounge now six nights a week right for like 338 dollars and 75 cents a week <laughs> and i'm playing till like four in the morning right and at some point after a couple of months of doing that i'm thinking wow I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. This right. is, you know, feelings, <laughs> nothing more than feelings. And after a while, that gets very tired. Yeah. So, so one night, the fifth dimension, we're playing in the big ballroom down the hall. 
So, you know, I scooted down there. Of course, if there was other music in the hotel, I wanted to go check it out. So I scooted in, snuck in, you know, went down the back, and uh, it's the fifth dimension, you know, with a big orchestra and a, a, a rhythm section. Somehow I got to the drummer and said, hey, hey, we're playing down in the Poodle Lounge. When you guys are done, come down and sit in. And so sure enough, they come down there, the drummer sits in, and I'm like, well, I'm thinking, well, you know, he's not that much better than I am. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, so, so look here. Uh, so how do you get a gig with the fifth dimension? And he goes, well, I mean, the first thing is you got to be able to read. <laughs> a number one. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, wow. And in that moment, I decided, I said, I'm going to go back to Amherst. I'm going to enroll in UMass for real this time and get in their, their Afro, Afro-American music and jazz degree program and really get my reading together and get my, you know, my, all my weaknesses ironed out so that I can have more control over what I do for a living. You know, it's like either you stay here and play in the pool lounge six nights a week or wherever else you can scrape together an income mm-hmm. or you can have, you know, really the skills and the education uh, of a of a legitimate you know musician and have a little more say about where you play and what you do, right? And that was when it was kind of you know a, a revelation for me that to really say okay I'm really going to go and 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 go to college and study music, right? And do and, <laughs> and you know. so I, I went back to to UMass. Max Roach was long gone at that point, but I was. Uh, actually enrolled in the music program that time, and I was a little older than. And uh, my classmates, I was like, at that point, I was like 27 years old. And, and all of my, uh, you know, uh, fellow freshmen were like 18. So, <laughs> but I had experience. So, you know, I, I, I played in the big band and uh, it was invaluable. But um, sure. that all got interrupted when, you know, I was probably in my third year there. And uh, there was a piano player named Bruce Clark, great piano player and, uh, he was friends with Art Blakey's son, who lived in Vermont, of all places. Gamal Buhena is his name. And there was a, a, a an art gallery restaurant uh, owned by a, a guy in, um, in uh, God, Waitsfield, Vermont, mm-hmm. which is where Sugarbush uh, Ski Resort is. Yeah. Anyways, this guy was bringing up jazz groups. Uh, he brought Blakey up there. He brought John Hendricks. And they played for like two weeks in this like beautiful art gallery slash like French restaurant, right? So they were bringing in Sonny Stitt. And Art's son uh, had this connection with Bruce. And he said, listen, uh, can you put a group together to play with Sonny Stitt? And Bruce was like, yeah, yeah, I'll get John Ramsey. I'll get Santi Debriano to play bass. And so anyways, I go to Vermont. I'm staying in Art Blakey's son's house playing for two weeks, uh, six nights a week with Sonny Stitt in Vermont. And uh, the, the odd thing was that I'd never met Art's son before, but he was good friends with Bruce. At some point, he, he came over to me and said, man, you know what? He said, your playing reminds me of my father. And I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, you're kidding, right? He's no, no, you you remind me of my father. I'm like, well, geez, thanks a lot. But boy, I'll tell you. And to, just to back up a second, another funny aside here. I'm all over the map, I know. But I was playing in Max <laughs> Max Roach's ensemble one time, and he came up behind me, leaned over. He said, no, no. He said, don't play it like that. Play it more like Art Blakey would play it. 
this is like 1975 or something like that. And I, I had to turn around. I said, I've never heard Art Blakey. <laughs> <laughs> and Max wrote, she said, what? He said, man, you better get busy. Uh, like, okay. So now we're, you well, know, this, okay, let me figure this out. <laughs> yeah. This is like, you know, I don't know, three or four years later. And, um, you know, Art Blakey's son is telling me, man, you remind me of my father. But I guess I was just kind of a, you know, a, a loud basher. Maybe that's what, <laughs> what, what uh, you know, struck him. But anyways, the point I'm getting to is uh, after that gig, I, I went back to UMass. I went back to being a student. I don't know, six months later or something like that, I get a, a, a call from, from Art's son, Gamal. And he goes, listen, my father is putting together a big band. He wants to use two drummers. And I want you to audition. Wow! You know, and that, in that moment, my heart stopped. Right, I'm like, "What? Are you serious?" And I, it's like, "Well, well, who else is auditioning?" He goes, uh, "Keith Copeland and Michael Carvin." <laughs> 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 and I said, "Right, okay." I said, uh, "You know, I'm happy to audition, but I think with those guys, I don't really hold out much hope of getting the game." Anyways, long story short. Uh, he calls me back like a week later. He said, okay, there's the, the audition is at the Black Bean Studio in New York on such and such a date. A couple of weeks later, he calls me and says, hey, uh, what's your passport number? I'm like, uh, well, let me get it, blah, 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 such and such. And I'm like, okay. And I said, what's your shirt size? And I'm like, well, I don't know, medium is... And your jacket size? I'm like, well, wait a minute. Why are you asking me this? He's, he said, well, you still have to audition but my father's drug with the other two guys, that's that's jazz lingo, right? right? Jazz vernacular. My father's drug with the other two guys because they're asking for too much money. <laughs> <laughs> so um, off I go to the audition. The next thing I know, I'm like, you know, Art Blakey's backup drummer. So I, I, I ended up doing that big band tour. And that big band was very interesting because in that band, you had two sets of brothers. You had Wynton Marcellus and Branford Marcellus were 18 and 19 years old, respectively. Wow. Nobody had ever heard of them yet. Um, and then Kevin and Robin Eubanks were in the band. So those were the two sets of brothers. Billy Pierce was a tenor player. Um, Bobby Watson was a musical director, alto player. Branford played alto and baritone, by the way. Mm. James Williams on piano, Charles Fambro on bass, Art and I. Man. And Valerie Ponomareff was the trumpet player left over from Art's small band of the, the late, late, uh, late 70s. With. So anyways, I, I did that big band tour with Art, second drummer. Actually saw Max Roach in Italy when I was on that gig. Actually, there was a night we were in Italy where, where uh, Kenny Clark was in town. There was a big festival, I think Torino, Italy or something like that. And mm -hmm. I think Kenny was playing the next night. And so Art, Art said... Yeah, in the you know in the hotel at lunch that day, he called me over. John, you know who this is? I'm like, God, well, no. He said, This is Kluk. And I'm like, Oh man. So, anyways, he said to Kenny, he said, Do you want to sit in with us tonight? So, Kenny said, Sure. So there I am, like you know, kid from the hills of Western Mass on the Vermont border, and I look out as Art Blakey in front of me, and then next to him is Kenny Clark. I'm in the back, and I'm going, That's Art Blakey. That's <laughs> Kenny Clark. And I'm like what am I doing here? <laughs> but anyways, the, 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 the last thing I'll say, was, I've been trying to get to the, you know, the, the uh, punchline here is that after the big band, I came back to Western Mass. Uh, I think I tried to resume going to school. And by the way, that big man tour actually interrupted my college education. So I never did get to, to finish. But 
Anyways, uh, uh, I don't know, a month later, Art called me, asked me to be his road manager. He couldn't find his son anymore, who was the, the road manager for the big band. And that led to like two and a half years uh, as Art's road manager, which <laughs> is So were you still playing with him and, and managing him? No, at that point, uh, I mean, there were times when I would I was the rehearsal drummer. There was one gig I filled in when uh, <laughs> it was late in, in right. D.C. at Jazz Alley, I think it's called. It was another gig in 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 uh, um, Geneva, Switzerland, when he, he he double booked himself for a recording session with Benny Golson and Freddie Hubbard. <laughs> <laughs> I get a call from Benny uh, Benny Golson said, "You know, Art is supposed to be in New York now, and he got paid a lot of money." <laughs> So I actually I actually stayed and did the gig with the band in, in Geneva, but my duties were primarily as as road manager, and there, you know the big band was that was over, and he went back to a small group, and but I was yeah I was the road manager, which is a whole nother book really that yeah you know but uh, so that's uh, you know and then after two and a half years with Art, I mean he stayed on the road, he lived on the road. I mean you'd be in in Europe or you know the Caribbean or Asia, you know. He was he traveled 50, 50 weeks out of the year if he could. And did, after a so, couple of did, sorry to cut you off, but just to know, clarify, did you say he couldn't find his son? Yeah, because he didn't want to be found. <laughs> <laughs> okay. After after that big band tour, see Gamal didn't grow up around his father because uh, his parents were divorced, and that was that that big band trip where Gamal and his one of his friends from up in Vermont were the road managers. Really was like, I think his first really kind of close hand exposure to art and and art had some you know he was a um, how do I put this delicately you know he was a hardcore uh, dedicated road warrior and uh, you know I think once Gamal kind of had a taste of that life uh, he knew he didn't want to any part of it really right. and so right. when when the when the big band disbanded art went back to the the small van, he was calling Gamal to come out with him, but but Gamal didn't want to be found. And so when Art said, I can't find Gamal anywhere, <laughs> it's because he didn't want to be found. So That makes sense. But um, uh, my other sort of final point, and then I'll shut up here for a minute, was that uh, after like two and a half years of grueling, grinding on the road with Art and really not playing, uh, I wanted to to go back to being a drummer, and I wanted to get off the road and stay in one place, you know. Mm -hmm. And so James Williams and Billy Pierce had been in, in our small band, and uh, I had done some teaching at UMass when I returned there as a student. They had a, like uh, it was called the um, Performing Arts Division that you know took kind of uh, students would teach local kids, and so I'd done a little bit of teaching, and and James and Billy had both graduated from and started teaching at Berkeley. And, I think James said, well, if you want to teach, you should go to Berkeley. And so I did. I, I, I went to Berkeley and I, I applied. It was a much smaller place then. And uh, that was my way to get off the road. I had a family then, too. I had a couple of kids. And uh, and so, you know, I needed to have an income. So that, that two and a half years with art uh, was enough to drive me to Boston to seek uh, gainful employment as a teacher. <laughs> right. You didn't want to do the didn't want to do the road thing anymore. No, I mean, yeah. like I say, I mean, you know, it's just a hard life, but also I had a couple of young kids and, you know, so, yeah, so that's how I, that was 1982, so um, I started teaching there, that's like 35 years ago that, that I've been at Berkeley now, yeah. so. 
So I know you didn't want my life story, but there you have it. (laughs) That's what we're here for. Let's take a quick pause for the cause, and we'll be right back with John Ramsey. So not only is John a DW artist, but I also play DW. But now that Gretsch is underneath the DW umbrella, I'm looking into getting a new Gretsch Catalina Club kit. Perfect for a new style. I'm moving, and I'm going to be using uh, the Catalina kit for a practice kit. I wanted something that sounds great that I can take out on gigs, but can easily set up and tear down. And if you haven't checked these out already, they are, as, as far as I'm concerned, the best bang for your buck. And you can check them out and learn more at GretschDrums.com. It's one thing to talk about how great Dream Symbols are, but it's another thing to actually hear them for yourselves. And the good thing about Dream is not only do they sound great, but they're also priced well below the competitor's prices, so that way you can actually afford to buy these symbols. And if you don't think you can get a great sounding symbol at a low price, check out DreamSymbols.com. But first, I want you to take a listen to what these things sound like. To learn more about Dream Symbols, be sure to check them out at DreamSymbols.com. Hey, all you vintage cats out there, you can revisit the golden era of drumming with the Evans 56, as in 1956, calf tone. They're made in New York with advanced synthetic materials, and then they're fitted with Diodario's level 360 technology. Evans 56 calf tone delivers the warm, familiar sound you love with the quality and consistency of a modern drummer's demands. You can learn how to get that calf tone sound at EvansDrumheads.com. It's one thing to know about gospel chops. It's another thing to know how to play gospel music. And the drum program at MI, Musicians Institute, has just started a course called Gospel Drumming, and it's taught by industry perennial Gordon Campbell. As a student, you'll learn the essential gospel repertoire and unlock the secrets of this exciting style. To learn more, you can visit mi.edu. Musicians Institute, instrumental in life. Now let's get back into it with the one and only John Ramsey. I want to dig down on a couple or dig into a couple things. One, uh, we had talked, we were talking about Alan Dawson and I sort of put a pin in that to remind myself to ask you that he was such an, an influential teacher player. Absolutely. Um, so what, what was it that made him so different? Why was he such an amazing teacher and why is he often referred to as this great teacher? Well, I think the first thing is he was an incredible player. Mm Hmm. I mean, you know, if you listen to some of those records that he made, I mean, he 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 was the he was the house drummer for Prestige Records for a period in the seventies. And there's all those things he did with uh, Booker Irwin and you know Dexter Gordon, and there's a bunch of catalog stuff there. But I mean, he was just uh, I mean, even Max Roach once said to me, uh, he said, you know, when we would go to Boston, we would be we would be shaking on our boots to have to play behind Alan Dawson, right? That's Max Roach talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, uh, I, I think you know he was obviously, obviously a musical genius, and I think what made his teaching so unique was that uh, you know I almost imagine him as kind of the mad scientist up late at night trying to think of of you know inventive ways to to you know to to uh, to impart certain concepts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of his exercise, they really were like a, a stroke of genius. I mean, everybody's kind of heard of the, the rudimental ritual now. Mm-hmm. And if you look at that thing, I mean, it's, you know, almost 80 rudiments, 26 American rudiments, the Swiss rudiments, uh, the new innovations, 
uh, and then some chops builders, which came from one of his students. The way he put that together, you know, and conceived of that over a bossa nova foot pattern and four and eight bar phrases is just like, I mean, that's a stroke of genius, you know. And there was an exercise that he did with a stick control book where you'd <clears throat> you'd actually play those uh, stickings and apply them to the drum set by playing the. This is all in the book. I know people have heard it, but you would play all the right strokes as alternating hands on the snare drum, all the left strokes on the bass drum as a bass drum, and then uh, you know you would you would play those exercises four bars of time, four bars of the exercises uh, over various song forms. So you would do like an A A B A tune first, and and the the part that always got everybody was you'd have to sing the melody of the tune while you were doing that. And so, you know, for him to kind of dream up that kind of exercise was just like, wow, you know, really mm -hmm. kind of uh, ingenious uh, thinking. But and he was very organized as a teacher. You know, if you would go to your first lesson, he'd give you if you didn't know them already, he would give you <clears throat> the first three rudiments. And he had all the rudiments organized and, you know, all the rough type rudiments, all the the flam type rudiments, all the numbered rolls, double stroke rolls, and the diddles, paradiddles, that stuff. And so there was always a, already a method to his madness. That, but when you went to your lesson with Alan, he would give you three rudiments to work on. You know, his students came either every week or every other week. I was every other week because that's all I could afford and because I lived far away. But you would come back to your next lesson. And he'd go, okay, let's hear, uh, let's hear those rudiments, you know. And you would play those three rudiments that he'd get, given you. And if you hadn't practiced them enough, he would go, well, yeah, how much did you practice those? And, hey, you know, I, I did them, you know, Tuesday, and then I did them again on Friday. <laughs> you know, I was not a great student. And he's going to say, well, I think you need another couple weeks on those three before I give you the next three. Mm. And after a while, you go, man, this guy's not fooling around. And same yeah. thing with syncopation. You know, he had those 40 ways of playing those eight pages in syncopation. And each week he would give you one way and you'd have to come back and play all those eight pages that particular way. Like snare drum plays the line or, you know, uh, uh, bass drum plays the line, left hand filling in triplets. But you had one per lesson, one way, but he was adamant about you playing all eight pages. So you would inevitably come back and you play ex exercise one flawlessly and you go, great. He says, how about, uh, let's see, I haven't heard you play exercise seven in a while, have I? And you go, oh, God. So you flip through the pages, get to exercise seven, fumble your way through that. And you go, well, did you practice that page as much as you practice exercise one? And you go, well, not really. He goes, you know, I think you need another week on that on that way. Right. <laughs> so right. he was a taskmaster. Mm -hmm. So, but, but you learn very quickly. You know, if you want those next three rudiments, you better practice these because he wasn't going to give you the next thing until you 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 he showed that you mastered it. You know, to the degree uh, that you know you could or would in in, in that amount of time. So. Right. That was the thing about him. He didn't, you know, he didn't pull any punches. As a matter of fact, here's, I think, a, a good I indication of the kind of teacher Alan was. And <laughs> I think it was maybe my second or third lesson with him, you know, and I was really, I was fishing for compliments is what I was doing. And, you know, we all knew that he had taught Tony Williams and, uh, you know, uh, Clifford Jarvis and a bunch of other guys, J.R. Robinson and, uh, and so, you know, I was kind of a big fish in a small pond out in UMass, Amherst, Western Mass area. I was the hot, hot shit in the area. You know? right. So 
I, I think the second or third lesson, I said, look, I said, uh, could you give me an evaluation of my of my playing? <laughs> you know, I said, yeah, man, you're, you're killing. You're the next Tony Williams. Uh, he kind of sat back, you know, and crossed his arms. And he said, well, he said, um, he was very diplomatic. He said, well, you know, you're a proficient drummer. You, you've been playing for about 10 years. He said, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, you're really a beginner. Oh, and I was like, "Oh man!" I said, well, "What do you mean?" Yeah. <laughs> he said, "Well, uh, you really only know one style." <laughs> I said, "Yeah, that's true." I oh. said, he "Said uh, you don't know any rudiments." <laughs> well, I got the three you gave me three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. I can fumble through those, <laughs> but but you know, it, it, hindsight. If he hadn't said that to me. I probably wouldn't be where I am today because, I mean, it was just a very honest assessment that really let me know that, uh, man, you don't know squat, buddy. Yeah. You you really better get caught up here because, uh, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And, and yeah. it was – but I, I thank him to this day for, for that honesty. And, you know, that I mean, it was so, so uh, typically Alan that, you know, uh, was just straightforward, honest, and uh, – let you know, you know, you've got, got a lot to learn, buddy. So, well, you know, at times there's we we don't want to hear that that criticism. But if we don't hear that criticism, we're never going to grow. I remember one of my teachers when I was probably probably around the same age that this stuff sort of happened to you. I was in my 20s mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, my my professor was sort of the or not my professor he was just a, a teacher that I was studying with privately. And he was sort of the. You know, the he didn't pull any punches or anything, and just one day he just looked at me. He said, "Yeah, it's, you know, it's uh, that shit's not really happening." Yeah, you yeah. know, I was like, <laughs> I uh, heard that one too. Yeah, and yeah. you're like, I what does that mean? And, and so, you know, but at at the time, you sort of leave with your tail between your legs, but then you realize, okay, one, it's it really wasn't happening, and two, uh, if I have everybody telling me I'm the greatest drummer in the world every day, you know, that's not going to do anything for me to grow. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I want to talk about your teaching style uh, specifically because I was reading through sort of your bio on the on the Berkeley website. And there's something that really stuck out to me in terms of making music be part of your life and not defining you. And the listeners know that uh, that I'm always I'm always pushing this idea to try to change the narrative of what it means to be a professional drummer, because I think that there is this stigma that. If you are not playing in twenty five in front of twenty five thousand people every single night, you haven't yeah. made it. You're unsuccessful, you know, yeah. and it's not worth pursuing music unless you're going to get to that point. And if you have other interests, you know, then you're not a true musician. Which I want to get rid of all of those those yeah. negative things. So I'd love to hear your your take on that. Yeah, well, I think we're always our first of all our our own worst critic, and I think when you're younger, you get your your identity and your human worth mixed up with your your value and your accomplishment as a as a musician i know i did that for years and uh you know that that leads to some serious depression (laughs) and worse but i think one of the guys that really kind of helped me with that was uh for for a number of years i studied piano with a guy named charlie bonacus Mm -hmm. and he i mean this guy and he taught every every instrument and, and i mean you could take probably 
75, 80% of the Berkeley faculty, and they, they probably all studied with Charlie Bonacus. Danilo Perez was one of his students. So, you know, if, and even when, I mean, Danilo had already been making records. He had two or three CDs out under his name. He was still studying with Charlie. And the story was, was, was that Miles Davis called up Charlie one, one night, uh, and, you know, and that Miles voice said, Charlie Bonacus. I want to study with you, and and Charlie was like, "Oh, this is Jerry Bergonzi, right?" And he hung up the phone, and, but <laughs> but it was really Miles, and so uh, Charlie was just—he was one of these savant music people that you know, no matter how much you knew, you could still go to Charlie, and and, and there would be stuff that he could give you that that was you know, <laughs> uh, stuff you didn't know, but. But I remember Charlie one time in, in my piano lesson with him, because I always wanted to play piano. And, uh, of course, you don't get that in the college piano classes that you take for four semesters. But um, And I sing, too, so I always, you know, fantasize about accompanying myself on piano. But, uh-huh. you know, I, I went to my, my piano lesson with Charlie, and, you know, he was like Alan, too. You know, if you didn't practice, he knew it right away. And he was like, well, I'm not giving you a new tune because you can't play that one. So. Mm-hmm. But I went there. I was like, "Oh, Charlie, man, I, I didn't get to practice enough this week, and man, it's just terrible. I don't even want to play for it." I was like, "I can't play." So I play and I fumble through whatever piece I was working on, and I go, "Man, I'm so sorry, Charlie." You go, "But that's all right." So you know, you got to work on it some more. But you're still a good human. All right. <laughs> you're still a good human <laughs> being, and it was just like, "Oh, right." This has nothing to do with, you know, being a, 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 a worthy human. It's just like, it's music. It's only music. Mm-hmm. Terry Lynn told me that story once about when she was playing with Wayne Shorter. And, this, you know, she had a bad night or she felt like she had a bad night. And she uh, she went to Wayne in the dressing room after the game. She said, oh, Wayne, I'm so sorry. I played so bad. And I said, oh, I feel so terrible. And Wayne says, Look, it's only music. <laughs> That's it. So, I mean, you Nobody's know, going to get hurt. I think we all go. Yeah. Yeah. This is another teacher here. Probably says college professor. So, you know, we're not studying medicine here. We're not we're not performing, uh, you know, open heart surgery. It's only music. But uh, I mean, I think it's it's something we all go through when we're young and we all want to be the best we can be. And of course, we all want to be playing for twenty five, fifty thousand people. But I mean, the reality of it is, you know, we can only do our best and. And, you know, I think if we're, you know, I, none of us choose music, I, I don't think either. I think music kind of chooses us. And, uh, I mean, we never know. I mean, I never would have, if you would ask me, I would have never uh, predicted that I would be teaching at Berkeley for 35 years or that I would be the chair of the, the percussion department. You just don't know. You, you know, you just put in the time, you, you work as hard as you can, and, uh I think, you know, the, it's a journey that, uh, you know, some of us are going to be um, um, Antonio Sanchez or John Blackwell. Some of us are going to be, uh, you know, working for uh, uh, the drum channel. You know, right. you don't know. And I think it, it's all it's all uh, valid. It's all valuable. And it's uh, for me, the, the, you know, when we were young, we always talked and dreamed about making it. Right. And of course, making it at that time meant being the next Beatles or some crazy mess like that. Mm-hmm. But over the years, that became tempered to, to making it became, can I make a living and make a livelihood, provide for my family and do what I love? 
Right. In other words, can I can I you know continue to do music, but you know pay the rent, you know feed the family, keep the lights on. So I think anybody who who can do that and and stay in doing what they love in music, but still make a living at it, then you've made it. That's you know. That's what I think. It's it's sort of yep. the the freedom to get up every day and do and do what you love and you know like I never knew that I would be running a podcast as a as a yep. full-time job, you yep. know, and and I love it and I would have never in a million years thought of that thought that I would be doing this, but I yep. I love it and I have complete control over the things that I do every single day. Yeah. I mean that that, that sorry to cut you off. No, no, no. That, very important point is that, you know, I haven't had to wait tables or or pump gas <clears throat> for a long time, <laughs> right? But I, I, I will share with you and your listeners another another story that that kind of gave me the fuel and the motivation because I think that's a big factor is having the motivation. Uh, of course, I had a bunch of kids too, and they they'll they'll motivate you. But sure. but you know when I was in my early twenties, late teens, I did work. I worked in a tool factory. I worked in a paper mill. I worked on construction. I worked, uh, you know, in, as a, as a mason's assistant. Now, thank thank God, I haven't had to do that since then. But I remember working at Irving Paper Mill <laughs> in Irving, Massachusetts, and sitting in the lunchroom with a, a buddy. My job was to uh, to load the paper towel machine. By the way, <laughs> and, but I remember sitting in the in the lunchroom. <clears throat> with a friend of mine and there was a guy over in the corner and you know, the green drab olive drab, you know, factory worker uniform with his name over the pocket. And, and uh, mm -hmm. I remember my friend saying, said that that's Joe over there. I said, who's Joe? He said, that, that's Joe. He said, said, Joe is a lifer. And I was like a lifer. What the hell is a lifer? And then I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he's worked here his whole life. And in that moment, you know, I flashed on the idea before my mind where there's no way in hell that I'm going to be a lifer working in this paper mill. And that was another moment when I decided I am going to get an education in yeah. music. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not just going to keep, you know, going along self-taught playing in, you know, uh, the scrubby bars. And that was a very, a very significant moment for me that really, uh, you know, to think that uh, I would spend the rest of my life in that dark, dank factory, you know, dimly lit factory was like uh, that scared the bejesus out of me, as they say. So yeah. I think I'm fortunate in that, you know, I, I had the ideas probably from Max Roach or somewhere along the way that if I got a formal education in music, I stood a better chance of of surviving and being able to do, uh, you know, what I loved. Yeah. So so anyways, <laughs> I think there's uh there's there's a couple things. One that if you did want to stay at that place and continue to work there, I think that's cool too. <laughs> yeah, um, that's okay. <laughs> and you know, for me, I've, you know, I've done everything, you know, I've played in or played in clubs all over the country. I've been in vans, I've been in tour buses, done all, you know, have done all that. Yeah. And so I've paid my dues. I've played at dingy dive bars, you know, hundreds yeah. or thousands of them probably. Yeah. And on I I always and I struggled with this for a long time, but it was it was I was in this position of saying I don't always want to have to go do that gig. 
Right. Because I have to. Yeah. And I'm if I want to go do that gig and you know, and I think I dealt with this thing of saying, Well, if I if I don't want to go play that gig, then that means I'm not a real artist. That means I'm not a real musician. I have other interests and things like that. Yeah. And I got to the point where I just said, you know what? It's about it's about freedom and happiness at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. So I, I see some guys playing out, you know, Friday night when it's – and I know they're getting paid 75 bucks. And I just <laughs> – I don't feel like doing that. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah, after picking up that trap case, you know, for yeah, you know, ten or twenty years, you go, well, do I really want to pick that thing up and load this stuff in the car for fifty bucks? But you know, I think I, I'm, I was while you were talking, I was thinking also, but maybe what you might have seen on uh, on my my bio at Berkeley, but the, there was a a student from I think he was from Korea one time. You know, and every time I had a student at Berkeley, their first lesson, I would I would ask him. Uh, yeah, so what do you want to get out of your lesson, right? Mm-hmm. And this kid, I mean, I'll never forget this kid. I wish I could remember his name. But, I mean, he had this big smile on his his face, and he thought about it for a minute. And, you know, I said, so, you know, what What do you want to get out of your lesson? He said, well, um, I want you to teach me how to have a happy life. <laughs> and that's it. And I was like, man. Wow, no one has ever said that before, and uh, it was just so refreshing, you know. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if I succeeded, but I mean, that's the other thing. I you learn down the road, you know, when when you get a little older, that you know, there's there's like like now I think you know, this is going to sound corny, but <laughs> I like to fish. I go fishing. I I, 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 I have a, a, veg, a vegetable garden. I enjoy working in the garden, you know. So I mean. I remember um, John Laporta, who was one of the, the early jazz uh, education founders. Really, he started on, on in Long Island, I think, in Huntington, with the with um, oh gosh, I'll never think of his name now. But he's a the legendary jazz teacher, drummer. Actually, was in the jazz uh, early jazz education on Long Island. But um, uh, John Laporta said to me once during an interview I did like this that. Uh, you know, he said, you know, <clears throat> musicians can be so myopic and you have tunnel vision and, and that all you do is pursue music. You know, you stay down in the practice room, you know, you don't, you don't live your life. And he said, those musicians are the musicians who there's no depth to their playing because they don't live life. It's very mechanical. It's very, you know, uh, and you have to get out. And I think he might have said, you know, you have to get out and smell the roses or, you know, do other stuff and, right. uh, you know, live live a, a well-rounded life, you know. And, of course, we all go through, I think, spells where we, we stay down in the practice room for crazy hours and stuff. And you need to do that, too. But you got to get out of there and, and uh, you know, uh, go out and look at go in the woods or something, you yeah. know. I, you know, I, I think everyone has to go through that time, like you said, about the spending these hours in the practice room yeah. of everyone has to go through that those couple years where they're practicing five, <clears throat> six, seven, eight hours a day. And they're really just that's their thing. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, I I guess that there's life happens and, and yeah. you need yeah. to sort of 
I don't want to say come to terms with it because it sounds like it's it's settling, but it's it's yeah. understanding that you can do other things in your life. Yeah, and that doesn't sort of you know it doesn't take away from the fact that you're a drummer or a musician or right. an artist. Did you yeah. struggle with that, or was that a natural progression for you? No, I've struggled with it off and on over the years. I mean, uh, you know, I've had I've had four sons too, so there's that that part of life. You know, having a family and raising children and you know, they, they'll get your attention in a, in a, in a quick minute. And, uh, yeah. you know, so, but I mean, what part always, did you, what part did you struggle with? Well, I think I struggled with, with, you know, um, and I still, I'm still struggling with this. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm actually stepping down as a chair, uh, in, in the fall, I'll go back to the faculty at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm 66 years old and I've been at Berkeley for 35 years and I'm really moving towards retirement. But, uh, the my job as chair, which has been about nine years now, that has been, uh, I mean, just a, such a consuming, uh, you know, we have like 650 students in the percussion department at Berkeley, 45 faculty, a staff of about five and, uh, you know, about 30 classrooms and, you know, uh, year round semesters. We have a 12 week summer semester, special programs, five week program in the summer, uh, uh, percussion festivals. So it's just the, the, the job has been really all consuming and it's really pulled me away from feeling like my, my, you know, focus and my center is, is the drums. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the thing that's finally, you know, uh, Help me decide to go go to to step down as chair is that I want to play some more you know i want to I want to get back to my instruments, so that's been one struggle but but even teaching is you know it's it's not like you're 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 focusing on your own needs in fact again, John Laporta, the great jazz educator, he said, you know teaching is an emptying thing, playing is a filling thing <laughs> yeah so so that that was that was a revelation to hear that and to realize, yeah, that's really the case. But so, you know, there's, there's the balance. And if you got a family and you're teaching, uh, you know, you, you probably do gigs, uh, when you can, or, you know, when they're available, but you know, then that, you know, you're, you're juggling with playing out till one or two in the morning and getting up at, you know, seven o'clock because you got kids or teaching. So there's that, that struggle that goes on, but I'll give you, uh, one more, uh, John Laporta, uh, piece of advice. Yeah, let's have it. And, and he said, uh, in fact, he wrote this in the book that he autographed for me that he wrote. Uh, he said, follow your bliss. <laughs> so that that's good advice. But mm-hmm. I was also reminded of something Max Roach said when you were talking about the whole eight hour, you know, practice uh, session thing. I, <clears throat> I, I, it was either me or a classmate asked Max Roach one time or maybe in a clinic. I don't remember. said, well, Max, uh, you know, how many hours a day should, should I practice? <laughs> and Max said, well, <clears throat> if you practice two hours a day, you sound like a drummer who practices two hours a day. If you practice eight hours a day, you sound like a drummer who practices eight hours a day. <laughs> yeah. What do you want to sound like? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it's an um, interesting concept about, about teaching as an emptying thing and playing as a filling thing. Cause I, yeah. I purposely, so I moved to a new location. I moved to, to the New York area and started this podcast at the same time. Uh-huh. So it was hard for me to sort of go out, get gigs, network, you know, get into the scene and start a business at the same time. Yeah. I so, mean, are there, are there any gigs left? <laughs> what's that? I, I think there are fewer gigs these days too. I know there are definitely uh, fewer gigs. Yeah. But anyways, go ahead. Uh, and I was just saying that I, 
you know, after starting this and purposely saying, okay, I'm going to focus on this and not focus on trying to get gigs or tour or anything uh-huh. like that. Yeah. Now I've been doing this for three years and now I'm getting ready to go back into getting gig mode because I feel that way. I feel that I've been emptying and because uh-huh. I still feel like this is sort of teaching through this yeah. podcast. And yeah. when I say emptying, I don't mean in a negative way, but I mean right. in a, it's giving, you're giving all the time. Yeah. Right. And I, I, so I, I'm missing that, that aspect of, of playing definitely, but I've never heard it phrased like that. So that, that really resonated with me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah an interesting too. concept. I so mean, that, uh, I think the other thing too that you know, I remember when we had J.R. Robinson at the school uh, a couple of years back, and uh, he wanted to work both with with the percussion department and the music production and engineering department. In fact, he wanted to produce some some students, but he said, you know, his his business, his livelihood has changed, and and this is for a lot of guys. I hear this from a lot of who there was another guy that talked about this too. Maybe it was Simon Phillips or somebody like that, but uh, but he said that you know he no longer can depend on his playing and, you know, recording for, for his livelihood, but he's had to, to don the, um, the producer hat and, you know, he has his own home studio and a lot of his work is, is producing now. And, uh, you hear this from a lot of guys, I know, particularly on the West coast that, uh, I mean, you have to be drummer slash entrepreneur now. I mean, maybe we always did because we always, even if we, you know, I had a couple of bands where I was kind of the booking agent and the drummer. And so we've always had to hustle. But I think now, you know, there's 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 really more of kind of, you know, that's another thing you, you see at PAS sometimes, uh, how, you know, mastery of, of an instrument can translate over to, to other areas. And, you know, take, for example, you know, me becoming uh, an administrator, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I mean, I think what you're talking about with your podcast and, and, you know, the gigs and I mean, it's just the reality of the music business now that if you're going to really, again, you know, uh, you know, have be able to pay the rent and stuff, you you got to be more than just a drummer. I mean, you know, you teach a little bit, you you play a little bit, you, you know, you have a website design or you have a home studio that kind of the nature of the beast these days, I think. Mm -hmm. We just did a podcast with a a gentleman who's, he's a drummer, uh, sort of a hobbyist, but you know, he's toured a little bit, but he's more of a hobbyist, but he also runs a podcast about being a solopreneur. So just being, you know, a guy who has no employees or anything like that. And we talked about all these different ways that you could leverage your skills and leverage you know your your uh leverage the the things that you can do and the things that you know to bring in some more money to free up more time to play so whether it be help other artists build websites or you know whether it be this or that um so what what is the advice and that you have for people who are coming up now and also what is how are you doing that with with the students or like to round out that curriculum because it doesn't i don't see a lot of the drummers out there who want to you know, are, they're a lot less interested in the business side of it. They're a lot less interested in sort of the the entrepreneurial side of it, which I'm the opposite. I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, before I forget, I was going to ask, have you had Joe Bergamini on your podcast? I yet? have. You know, Joe? I yeah, have. yeah, yeah. He I does it. a great thing with that Sabian Education Network. They, he does. Yep. They came up to the school. We had uh, Dom Famularo and... Uh, I've had Dom as well, yeah. Yeah, and Joe and uh, uh, what's his name from Connecticut? Uh, Jim... Uh, oh, gosh, I'm sorry, Jim. Um Jim Rupp, I think. Um, But anyways, to to your question, Berkeley's an amazing place in that, uh, I mean, it's just grown so much over the years. uh, But 
there are 12 majors at Berkeley, and I'll just kind of fire off a few of them. There's the performance major, which is by far probably one of the most popular ones. There's music production and engineering, which is another uh, very large major. Uh, there's, uh, there's music education is a major. There's music business. There's music, music therapy. There's one called uh, uh, contemporary uh, production and design. What is it? Uh, contemporary writing and production, CWP. There is um, – there's uh, – so many of them. There's um, electronic production and design. But my point about that is you you have, like I said, we have about, on average, about 650 uh, percussion principles at Berkeley, and that's between six uh, six principal instruments. There's a drum set is the largest one, of course. Vibraphone's principal instrument, marimba, uh, uh, hand percussion, orchestral percussion, we used to call total percussion, and then steel pan is the, the sixth and newest of our principal instruments. So you take that piece of diversity there, but then you get kids that come, and this is something I have to learn. It took me probably 10 years of teaching to get this, to sort this out, but um, there are students that come there, let's say drummers, who have a, a whole um, range of interest in terms of their relationship to the instrument. Of course, the performance majors are there. They want to learn absolutely everything they can about the instrument. Uh, you know, the, their private lesson is the, the, the center of their, their student life uh, in their ensembles. Uh, but then you have students, I mean, there, there, there's a lot of students or a number of students who, who will do a dual major. For example, performance and music production and engineering is a, a relatively common dual major. Mm -hmm. There, Another popular one is uh, performance and music business, <clears throat> which is really a wise uh, dual major. Coincidentally, years ago when I was going to college, there was only two colleges in the country that had that as a dual major, and that was you guys and University of Miami, and that was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because I wanted, to, I wanted to do that, I ended up just getting a... a a minor in music, but I wanted a dual major. But yeah. go ahead. Sorry, I, I didn't yeah. want But it's well, just amazing to me how the times have changed. Yeah, Berkeley has a master's uh, program, which is relatively new, too. I don't know if there's a business master's degree, but just uh, FYI. Um, but my, my point was that, you know, I would get kids that would come to their lessons at Berkeley and, you know, <clears throat> I would give them their assignment, which was really modeled after Alan's teaching, which was, you know, usually, except, you know, Alan gave our lessons in at Berkeley for a, 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 for a long time. We only had a half hour lesson. So I would squeeze into a half an hour what Alan would do in an hour. So typically that would be rudiments, um, a stick control exercise using song form, uh, the four-way coordination with syncopation, and then this uh, single-stroke roll exercise that Alan did with with uh, stick control. So I would cram that all into a half an hour. But, you know, for a long time, students would, certain students would come back. <laughs> I'm laughing now because I'm thinking of some of these guys. They're big, famous drummers now. But students would come back and i go, okay, let's go over your rudiments. they go, oh, man, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't get the chance to practice those. i go, what? You didn't practice? I said, well, all right, well, let's do the syncopation. Oh, no, I didn't do that either. Uh, can't we just jam? And I, you know, I, I over and over again, I would get frustrated because I had in my mind that every kid that walked through my door was like I was at that age. And I just wanted to suck up everything I could know. You know, I wanted to like, give me more, give me more. Give me. And then I started to, I started to see a pattern and I don't want to disparage some of these kids because there's been some kids that 
uh, you know, were uh, music production engineering majors or whatever. They were awesome players too. But after a while, I started to see a pattern, pattern with, oh, this kid is not here because he wants to play the drums. He's here because he wants to be a recording engineer. Or this kid is not here because drums are his driving passion. He wants to be a music business major. Mm-hmm. And, and it took me a while to figure that out. Because Berkeley is like, um, <clears throat> there are these, every student is required to take uh, a minimum of four semesters of private instruction. But some of those majors like music production and engineering, music business, um, let me think of another quick one, uh, maybe uh, contemporary writing and uh, CWP production, uh, electronic, uh, what's the name of the darn thing, EPD, electronic production and design. Those kids, they only take four semesters of private lessons, so they're really just taking those to get through that requirement, and their their ultimate goal is not to be a drummer. Right. So after I kind of sorted that out, it was easier for me. And, you know, I, 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 I the kids who came through the door who really wanted to, you know, learn as much as they could, like the Antonio Sanchez's and the, uh, um, you know, John Blackwell and uh, <laughs> a number of other guys that I can never remember their names. Bruce Cox is another one. These guys just, they would, they were like sponges. They wanted to, to, um, you know, to get as much information as they could. And, uh, there's a drummer, uh, Jim Black. Have you ever heard of Jim Black? Do you know yeah. Jim Black? Yeah. Amazing kid. This guy, I mean, he's not a kid anymore, but he's, I mean, he, he took New York by storm, but you know, typically I would give him like this Alan Dawson four-way coordination stuff, and I'd say, okay, come back next week. Let's see that. I'll give you the new This kid, I would give him a new way to play uh, uh, syncopation or rudiments or whatever. The next day he'd be knocking on my door, and he'd go, hey, I, I got that one. Can you give me the next way? <laughs> <laughs> Jim Black. And, uh, you know, I never forgot that. But, I mean, you know, so I had to really kind of discern – who those students were who really were trying to, you know, you know, become the best player they possibly could with a kid who was just taking the lesson because it was required and he had to go through four semesters. So there was that kind of that there's that dynamic at Berkeley, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it's still there. But I mean, by and large, most of those kids that come and even though, although they may want to go into songwriting or or, you know, music business, uh, most of them still want to, you know, keep the instrument uh you know that it's still a a a a priority for them to learn as much as they can but you know berkeley's such a unique place now that uh there's so many levels and i remember a kid uh um i won't say his name but uh this kid had he he kept spinning his wheels he couldn't really get get he couldn't play on a college level is what it was he and he wasn't ready you know you know it's like Believe it or not, there are kids that come to Berkeley. I go the first lesson. So, how long have you been playing? He goes, "Oh, I've been playing two years." And I'm, what? He said, "He said, well, I, I only took the drums because I wanted to. I wanted to get in Berkeley and do music production, and so so I chose the drums because it would be easy, right?" I'm like, "Well, not uh... exactly." But anyways, this kid, I mean, he struggled so hard. He was the nicest kid, but he just couldn't get past square one. And you know, I, it was the only time I ever did this. And to this day, I, I, I regretted doing it. But I said, I said, you know what? Maybe you ought to think about another career other than music. Right, yeah. <laughs> and it just went right over his head, and he went right back to trying to do whatever it is he was trying to do. And you know what? This kid turned out to be like he was a contributor to like a very 
very well-known drum publication. He became a real, uh, you know, publishing, uh, drum publishing sort of uh, figure in the industry. And so you never know. You know, oh, wow. it's like, uh, you know, so it's like I never said that again because, I mean, I just realized you, you, you can only encourage them to do absolutely the best they can do. And, and who knows, you know, so. right. Right. I don't know if I answered your question. No, but. you did. The the one the, the thing that I have noticed with a lot of people who I've talked to that have gone to Berkeley and have done you know huge tours or in gigantic bands or yep. um or super duper famous, it seems like they end up leaving early. And, yeah. Well. And yes, what? But. And do you think it's just that they're just they're sort of on on that trajectory, and Berkeley seems to be sort of a stop on the way there. Yeah, I think a lot of kids come there for the networking and maybe to kind of, you know, cap off their – Thomas Pridgen would be a good example. He was probably there for a year or two. But, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, um, even Branford Marcellus, Marcellus, I think, probably the most famous <laughs> yeah. uh, alumni that didn't actually finish his degree. But, I mean, there are some guys that just come and, and, and they're ready for, for uh, you know – a career in the industry and that they're, they're getting offers to, to play and go to Europe and tour and stuff. And so, uh, but I mean, then there's guys like Marvin Smitty Smith. He was a, he was a composition major. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. And he, he graduated. I think Jeff Watts probably finished there, but I mean, it depends, I think, you know, but there are, yeah, there are people that <clears throat> come there and they're, they're, they're already um, fully formed, so to speak. And, you know, the the, the, the 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 very gifted guys that just uh there's no reason to hang around you know right right <laughs> they play yeah. better than, than the you know 80 percent of the teachers already anyway so i mean what are they going to do there you <laughs> right. know so but i mean i think it's it's probably largely more that opportunity is knocking and they they can't you know not say yes you know sure. yeah i don't blame them so do you teach outside of berkeley do you teach privately too yeah, I have a small practice here at, at my house because I had, you know, the reason I bought the house is because of the, the teaching studio that Alan had downstairs. It was just a beautiful, you know, it's like a drummer's dream, a finished basement with knotty pine, uh, you know, uh, walls. And it was the perfect teaching and practicing space. And, and that was what attracted me to the house. I, you know, I could care less about the, the three bedrooms in the you know, the sky lit, uh, <laughs> dining room and right. stuff, <laughs> you know, that was like, but, you know, I, I just want the, the, the studio in the basement. So sure. I do, I have a Saturday, Saturday, uh, private practice that, uh, will probably grow once I, I, I retire from Berkeley, but right now with the, you know, with the chair duties and then going back to the faculty, uh, in the fall, I'll probably expand it. But right now I just kind of limit it to Saturdays and, uh, so if someone <clears throat> wants to study with you, what's the best way for them to, to reach out or get in touch with you? Uh, well, they could hit me up on Facebook or um, they could email me at J-R-A-M-S-A-Y, J-R-A-M-S-A-Y, right? That's typically spelled E-Y, but J-R-A-M-S-A-Y at berkeley.edu. Okay. B-E-R-K-L-E-E, -E, not like Berkeley, California, right? Yep. <laughs> Yeah, so I appreciate that, man. Thank you for the... For yeah, the absolutely. Tips. So if, if anyone is in that area, actually just send your firm request. So. Look, I have guys that come in. I have guys that come from overseas that want to take in you know, a couple of weeks of two-hour lessons. I, I have a, 
uh, uh, orthopedic surgeon that comes up from West West Virginia, uh, Bill Carson. Yay, Bill, uh, who takes um, uh, a lesson once a month. So there's, you know, oh, cool. many options. So. Cool. Yeah. Well, John, uh, one thing I want to thank you for for taking the time to chat with me. I know that it's been it's been hectic trying to line this up, so I do appreciate you taking the time to do this yeah. and for sharing your stories about about Alan and about art and just about your your entire philosophy and your career. I really do appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Nick. I'm honored that you would have me along with some of those names you mentioned. I'm like, geez, wow. So uh, the pleasure is all mine, and uh, uh, I wish you. Uh, Good luck and warm weather out in San Francisco. And I want you to give my love to Don Lombardi and uh, Don Lombardo and um, uh, um, David Garibaldi and anybody else out there. Yes, yeah, uh, I will. Uh, yeah, I'll be I'll be heading down to DW and uh, and Drum Channel frequently, and hopefully I'll see David soon. And hope he's hope he's yeah, on the men. Hope he gets better. Stay in touch and let me know how it's going out there for you. Definitely will. John, again, thank you very much, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. All right, Nick. All My right. pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. So there you have it, the one and only John Ramsey, and I hope that you got some golden nuggets out of that. I know I did. He has such a unique approach on life about playing and the stories and the insights of why Alan Dawson was such a genius uh, is to me is, is priceless. And I recommend checking out The Drummer's Complete Vocabulary as taught by Alan Dawson. So John Ramsey wrote this book sort of in conjunction with Alan before he passed away. And as he mentioned, some of the proceeds go to the Dawson family. But this is just a really exciting book. Also, Ryan McBride wrote a two-part series called Alan Dawson, A Life in Music. And that's at drummersresource.com, too. I'll link up to all of this stuff in the show notes at drummersresource.com forward slash session 254 and quick shout out to my man Russ Lawton for really introducing me to Alan Dawson and his rudimental ritual and all of that fun stuff so thank you Russ I do appreciate it and thank you the listener for checking out this podcast session 254 I can't believe we got this far and don't show any signs of stopping anytime soon so if you keep listening then I will keep putting these out so I do appreciate it and until the next one keep drumming again thank you so much for listening and I'll be talking to you soon peace